Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello there. Patrick Maguire here on the Times Red Box Politics Podcast in Matt Shorty's absence. And today's is a cracker. Lots going on across the UK. Today, we're talking Humza Youssef and the future of the SNP and asking, what if JFK had lived in the latest of our series of counterfactuals? But first, time for our columnist panel. The Columnists with Ali Burt, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. Lots to get through today, despite it being parliamentary recess. There's a lot going on out there. Uh, not least the strikes crippling the NHS, uh, as I think we're obliged to say. Uh, the leader of the British Medical Association, a uh, bit lightning rods for controversy, uh, this crop of leaders, mm. uh, emerges that while his members are out on the picket line, uh, he's, uh, he's gone on a holiday while his union is leading the biggest strike in NHS history. It's not uh, a good look. It's uh, not a good look? No. It's not a good look. Long-standing family, long-standing commitment to a wedding, apparently. But it's not good enough, really, is it? I don't think they should be on strike anyway. And if they are on strike, he certainly shouldn't be at a, uh, on holiday. He should be waiting to try and do a deal. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, you can't imagine Arthur Scargill on a stag do in uh, no, 1984, can you? But I, it plays to a certain fundamental unseriousness about him and his co-chair of the uh, junior doctors committee they don't look like to me like they're serious people uh, they look like they're playing student politics with a very with a very a very grave matter do you agree alice well i think it's bad anyway that they're doing it just after a bank holiday when you always have mm-hmm. more accidents and more people needing to go into a and and there's a sort of backlog so it's been timed incredibly badly and then to go on holiday at the same time just makes it worse and i do i massively agree with the junior doctors i think it's really unfair to have this little pay at this stage and to you know that the amount of training they've gone into you know they've got to pay back their student loans mm. a lot of them going off to australia so i think they've got a really good point i feel less good about the union just but I think that their negotiating tactics have been good. I think actually the nurses' tactics were better. And I think this is much more of a mess. And I also think it is very dangerous now. I think people are really anxious and really worried on top of the pandemic. Uh, you know, and on top of everything else that's happened and with the cost of living crisis. I think that you know they do have to be careful. And to be going on holiday when no one else feels they have got much money just makes it look much, much worse. And indeed to be going on holiday Presumably, as the paper points out, as the Times points out this morning, if he's booked annual leave, he'll be being paid for this. Yeah. While his members, yeah. are, who aren't paid yeah. terribly well by their own uh, by their own argument, are uh, sacrificing uh, seven, four mm. days' pay. Yeah, 
I mean, the point and is they're standing they're... out in the rain, aren't they? I mean, yeah. they're all standing on the picket lines in the rain. He should be out there too. And that's what's so extraordinary, I think, is that it just shows absolute lack of political mouth to not understand what they what he needs to do and to be with them and to be something up for them. And also for the patients and to say that he's sorry. I mean, he should sound contrite about it. That's what I mean. It doesn't seem like a fun, a serious person to me. Or I mean, the strike is after a bank holiday because it, that's deliberately well to timed, ex- exert maximum damage, which is on the, the problem with doctors going on strike because you go on strike to uh, make your your point uh, and to exert as much damage and pressure as you can. But if you do that as a doctor, then people die. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, probably... and, and you're going to see that towards the end of the week. Apparently, A and E's are going to be closed. Yeah, our colleague Danny Finkelstein wrote about this mm. a while ago. And made that very point. Yeah. You know, redrawing your labour is about, yeah. well, what, what what are you doing if you're redrawing yeah. your labour of doctors? You're I mean, like Alice, I've got some sympathy with the junior doctors. I, I think there's a problem with the whole structure of training for doctors. I, I, I doubt in the modern age with modern uh, ways of learning that doctors need to train for six years and get into that much debt. Uh, I think if you if you go to the doctors now and you get a sensible doctor, usually a young doctor, often a female doctor they were perfectly willing to admit that they don't necessarily know everything and they will look it up on the internet with you sat, sitting there and you will arrive, arrive at a conclusion for your treatment yourselves. Mm. So the idea that you've got to go somewhere for six years to kind of bank all this knowledge that you carry around in your head and then get into a shed load of debt seems to me woefully old-fashioned. I, it's, almost as if, it's almost as if they're trying to run a closed shop, isn't it? That you can, that you can run... You, it's a barrier to entry mm. that, is, that is far too high. And it means that people... they need more doctors, don't they? I mean, that's what's extraordinary, is the fact that you know, nearly half our doctors don't come from Britain and that the ones that are then going mm. off to Australia. The, the well, yeah, exactly. But, said, it's but, completely done. But the fact that they have to undergo six years' training is, is obviously a disincentive, particularly to poorer people who might, be, who might have actually more ability. Uh, if you were a work, bright working class person who wanted to be a doctor, would you would you would you get yourself saddle yourself with that amount of debt? I'm not sure you would. Or uh, would you slog it in the NHS when the Australian Health yeah. Service is offering you shed loads of no, money and for, life in the sun? Don't blame him for doing yeah. that. But I think the whole training needs to be revisited. The whole distinction between a nurse and a doctor, and indeed a pharmacist, needs to be. I mean, it's part of the problem is why the NHS is in the crisis that it is because it hasn't. The training has not kept up with. Uh, developments in the way that we learn nowadays. Mm. And our very own Times Health Commission is, of course, chewing over all these big structural questions. Uh, 35% pay rise, uh, too much, Alice? Yeah, I think that's an unsustainable, and I think that, that's the problem. But also it's because it's neglected so long that there's this backlog that we've got to get to and work out how much we're going to give them. But, I mean, what they need to do is negotiate as the nurses. That they've, got, they've got to come mm. to the negotiation <clears throat> and so has Rishi you know, government got to know because I, I mean, I, the people I feel most sorry for are the people who've gone, you know, been getting cancer treatment who find their treatment suddenly stops or you know, they're trying to get tested. And, and I think it's such an anxious time anyway if you've got something like cancer that it must just be indescribable if you're waiting and you realise that the strike is going to put back your treatment. Uh, well, from the ridiculous to the sublime, shall hmm. we? Uh, let's listen to <laughs> living God. Let's t- well. Let's talk. Let's talk about your coli- uh, column, Alice, and uh, the recording of the Dalai Lama that's caused such uh, such controversy. Elsa, my tongue. 
Robert Crampton took his headphones off and, and <laughs> winced theatrically at the mere sound of that. Uh, but Alice, you know, upon seeing that you were, as you write in this morning's time, yes, repelled, but you haven't uh, reached the, uh, the the darkest possible conclusion about the Dalai Lama's character from that uh, from that incident. Yeah, so all over social media there are these pictures of the Dalai Lama with this young boy. And first of all, uh, he kisses him on the lips and then he asks him if he wants to suck his tongue. And it looks utterly revolting and balancing. This is appalling. And he's been cancelled everywhere and people never want to hear from him again. But my view is slightly different. Having interviewed him three times, um, twice in India and then once actually when he was coming over to Britain, um, I think it's slightly different. I mean, he's an 87-year-old man. There is absolutely... No rumours around him. I mean, the three of us all know there are rumours around lots of different people in public life, but actually Dalai Lama's never had any rumours around him. He's always been this very straightforward monk, actually. And I feel that, that we need to look at it more seriously and give him a chance. And, you know, there are a lot of rights in Tibet that do revolve around sticking out your tongue. When I, I lived there, that's how you greeted each other. So, so it's slightly different in that way. I don't think you can excuse it all on cultural differences, but also just look at what his track record is. And I, I think he had this extraordinary life and he has tried very hard actually to be this peacekeeper. He's seen and revered as a living God by 10 million Tibetans. And then at the same time, he's had all these bestsellers teaching people how to be happy in the West. That we need to look at it in the round. We can't just write him off without actually seeing what he's done and also looking into whether he's done this before. Are you prepared to cancel the Dalai Lama, Robert Crampton? No, I don't believe in cancelling people unless they're... Be more extreme, you'd have to be more extreme than this. I, 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 I don't know, is the answer. I defer to Alice's judgment. I've known Alice a long time. I think she's a good judge of character. She's <laughs> well, met, I could be completely wrong. She's I mean, the, people she, keep saying, yeah, I mean, people keep saying to me, oh, he's the Jimmy Savile of the East. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that. Jimmy Savile, there was <laughs> more background to it, to be honest. People did know it. There were lots of stories about him. Here with Alice Lama, when I visited him, there weren't stories. He didn't think he was sleazy, and he didn't seem sleazy. Fine, well, I go with that. Uh, I mean, he shouldn't have done it. It looks wrong. It looks it is, very odd. It is wrong and odd. I don't really buy the idea that that's some sort of traditional... I mean, things can be traditional and also sinister. Uh, it doesn't. You don't get off the hook just because it's mm. traditional. Mm. Uh, but I, I think Alice makes a good point. He's 87. He's been in the public eye for, oh, goodness knows how long, over well over half a century. You'd think there would be... If he... if this was those rumors would be around then you think i think about gandhi you know gandhi was a, was a, was a also and not a living god but he was a sort of living saint and then it emerged that there was there were there were there were uh locations around him and mm. uh, sleeping with his nieces and so forth uh, uh so but i just don't know i don't know perhaps it's a reminder that Deifying people in public life is. I think a good idea. I don't like the expression "living God," and it, that is yeah. a, that gives that is obvious potential for abuse. And if he hasn't, well, abused, no one's a saint or a total sinner. I mean, no. it's not all black and white. There are these different you know areas in between. I don't think he's mm. ever going to be godlike, but at the same time, he may not. You know, you can't just cancel him on one issue. I think probably. Although, I mean, I would hate to have his job. The idea that you're playing around as a two-year-old and you're plucked away from your family and then mm-hmm. the only reason you're told you're a living god is that you've identified someone else's false teeth i mean that is an extraordinary story i mean you know and your whole life changes overnight and you're pushing a palace with a thousand rooms and you don't see most of your family again i mean that that's bizarre that's the really bizarre part for me
Oh, is there any uh, is there any suggestion that I mean, how does he live? Does he live in a flamboyant way? Well, you say he's written all these books. What's happened to the money from all the books? So that all goes to charity and to right. investments. He lives in a bungalow that's really fairly basic, yeah. um, unless he's got others. But I don't think he has. And he does fly business class. He has a watch that's inherited, but he does like changing the straps. Apart from that, he has he was given a pair of Gucci shoes, which he wears sometimes. Um, apart oh, from that, he doesn't really he eats porridge and. <laughs> Very Tibetan food, that that butter tea, which is disgusting, I think. But um, he doesn't seem to spend money, need to spend money. He spends, he gets up at three, he meditates a lot of his time, he sees a lot of Tibetans, he sees some Westerners, he travels occasionally. He, he's, mm. he's not a man who wants stuff. I I mean, it's think a, it's an obvious misjudgment, to put it mildly, and, he's, and his office has apologised. But it would be a shame to, if an 87-year-old man who's basically been a sort of force for good on balance was written off on the basis of one correct admittedly quite sort of uh, yeah. queasy indiscretion yeah mm. uh, but yeah that was uh, i think a convincing def- uh, defense of the dalai lama you know who who knew that the uh, dalai lama would need a would need a champion but he's found it he's found a he's found a convincing one uh, in alice now keir starmer has published a five-point plan to revitalize local high streets it includes 700 million pounds to support small businesses with energy bills cutting business rates and introducing empty shop orders giving councils the power to bring empty shots back into use alex is from the campaign group Save the High Street, and he joins us now. Alex, are you convinced by this? I think, you know, it's positive steps. You know, I think the reality is action needs to be taken to support high streets for the future. And if we look at what's being proposed here by Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, there are good measures involved, but the devil is always in the detail. It's all good and well saying that they're going to reform business rates, But actually, if we look at the history, it's a lot of talk and not a lot of action from both parties. Now, when we look at empty shop orders, Mm. again, great to talk about this. And the vacancy crisis is real and it needs to be addressed. But the devil will be in the detail. Much easier to talk, much harder to put these things into action. Robert, do you like the sound of this? What's your local high street looking like these days? Uh, my local high street looks great, actually. Uh, it's re- really good, but mm. it's, it's in London, and it's uh, it was twenty years ago. It was pretty much boarded up. It was owned by the council. I'm slightly wary of councils getting involved because I mean I know they are involved, but a lot. It was owned by the council, and they had to uh, sell it off, and that's when they. Uh, private entrepreneurs moved in uh i think there's no mention here of in of out of town shopping centers which is it seems to me that's the kind of they're the real threat and have been ever since they started appearing first started appearing 30 40 50 years ago that is what is killing off the high street and uh so i'd quite like to see a policy that didn't grant planning permission so easily for out-of-town shopping centres. Well, places where car is king and... Yeah, I think it's the wrong... It's a, it was a, a bad move. I mean, yeah. people wanted it, but it's a bad move. I mean, it's bad for, you know, bad for the environment uh, and uh, deadly for the high street. Alice, what about you? Is your local high street in need a bit of TLC? Uh, mine definitely does, actually. I'm in, um, near Tiverton, and there are quite a lot of charity shops now. And it was pedestrianised a few years ago, but that sort of made it worse, I think, because no-one came through. They just drove their cars off to the uh, supermarkets just outside town. But it is changing slowly. We've got a farmer's market coming in. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time about a decade ago with Mary Porter, who did a review for the government. 
which, I mean, we do get these reviews over and over again about high streets, and it never seems to change. I think I've changed my opinion slightly there now. I think we should make them more residential. I think yeah. we've got such a problem with housing now that actually we don't need as many shops. A lot of people are buying online. I would turn them more into residential and cafes and old people's homes and centres and, and try and slightly change them because we have a lot of shops on the high street yeah. and maybe we should mix it up a bit. And entertainment as well. I think, yeah, nighttime economy, that kind of thing. That's what, that's what mine's benefited from. What do, you, what do you say to that, Alex? Is, is, is the time ripe not for, for, for a total rethink of what the high street is and represents? Every single high street needs its own unique plan. There's a unique catchment area, there's a unique community around it all. In some cases, there are is too much of some types of retail and not enough of others. What we need to be in a better position to do is plan high streets so that it serves the needs of what the community needs right now and is able to adapt for the future. So in some cases, it is about shrinking the edges of high streets and making them more compact, more residential around there. Um, in other cases, it's about changing the use and not just into residential, but into other uses, such as commercial uses. But in a lot of cases, there's a lot of demand for high street uses. In fact, we're supporting a lot of online businesses who want to come onto the high street today in retail, in product retail. And, um, you know, the problem we often face is that people have been on, you know, five to 10 year leases. They've been there for a long time. They're not in the right area for their business. And actually a better mix of high street offerings would better serve that local community. I'm looking at the stats here from the Centre for Retail Research. They're quite something. A total of 17,145 shops on high streets and in other locations closed for good during 2022. That's up almost 50% on the 11,449 that closed the year before. Those are, you know, it's sort of, and look, coming from mm. uh, Southport, which was once famous for its Victorian High Street, Law mm. Street, which is now mostly empty and full of, uh, full of charity shops and, and sort of chain coffee shops. I mean, it's not surprising, but seeing the stats sort of laid out like that, it's really, really striking. And so, sort of, you know, it's... It's very grim. I mean, I do, I do quite a lot of reporting uh, in the red wall mm. because uh, I'm the only person with, <laughs> with, flat, the Northern with, with flat vowels, so that's why I get sent there. And... Uh, you know, Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool doing great, doing fine, because they've made that transition to, you know, nighttime economy, yeah. uh, bars, pedestrianisation, canal side, dooby-doo. But you go to Hartlepool or Blythe or uh, Bradford, Mary, Blackpool, and it's more Oldham, smaller places. I mean, still biggish places, but some, but not kind of regional hubs. And the high streets are in desperate, desperate state. If you want to buy a vape or put a bet on... Put a bet on, buy a vape... Or buy a Valdunacanel play the 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 charity shop. Play the slot machines or have a drink. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You're fine. Otherwise. Otherwise, it's... uh. It's pretty slim. Get your nails done. Yeah. I mean, that's the same in the southwest. I think that it's the big towns. I mean, so Exeter's fine and Bristol's fine. But it's those, you know, small, big towns that are just Mm. dying, really, and that we haven't really upgraded since the 1990s. I think they're the ones that need the attention now. Or put it another way, all the places that are doing well we just mentioned have universities. Maybe students are the key, as much as some people you need love to knock students them. Students and a, and a kind of a bit of legal, a bit of media, a bit of finance, a bit of fashion, and then you're, you're fine. But uh, if it's just a one-industry town and the industry's gone, then that's a struggle. Crampton for mayor. I think that's, uh, <coughs> that's the lesson of today's Commerce Panel. That was Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. Remember, you can read both of those all-star columnists in The Times every week. Just head online and get yourself a digital subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. You're listening to The Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. Yes, that music will be familiar to many of you, I'm sure. Just as the patriarch of succession, Logan Roy, himself a Scotsman, has departed. Someone should have really put a spoiler warning on top of this. You know, having ruined it for myself earlier in the week, now I'm ruining it for everyone else. Anyway, Logan Roy has now departed, leaving his children scrabbling to seize the mantle of leadership. You can see where we're going with this one. So Nicola Sturgeon quitting has placed her successor, Humza Youssef, in a difficult position. The actor who played Logan Roy, Brian Cox, was speaking to the Rest is Politics podcast this week. He said the SNP is in dire need of a rebrand. It should be called the Scottish Independent mm, Party. Not it should so. not be called the Scottish National Party. Mm. That's, I would change the name. I would get rid of that name because it narrows everything. It narrows everything. And especially when we think of National Socialism, all the, kind of the, all the horrible things that go with the name National. So I, I'm all for really redesigning the party in that. So is Scotland's own succession doomed to failure? Or is it only up from here? I'm now joined by Alex Massey, Times columnist. Afternoon, Alex. Uh, well, I think it's still good morning, Patrick, isn't it? Just about. It certainly is. Sorry, I thought there was a time difference between uh, here in Edinburgh. My, well, my... not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not Although, yet. doubtless, doubtless uh, if the SNP get that way one day, <laughs> there may be, uh, you know, one hour and 30 years. <laughs> very good, very good. Hums, that's Hums's next policy, I'm sure. And the journalist and broadcaster, Ruth Wishart, joins me too. Hello, Ruth. Hi there. Um, Ruth, I'll start with you. It's been two weeks now. Uh, succession of bad headlines for uh, Humza Youssef. Uh, not least the latest news about him not knowing about the SNP's auditors resigning six months ago. Is it unfair to say he's already done for? Um, yes, that is unfair, but I think it is fair to say that as honeymoons go, this one's been something of a nightmare. Uh, why, exa- why exactly? Do you think that's Nicola Sturgeon's inheritance or do you think any leader would have faced the struggles he now faces? 
No, I think he's, well, he's, he's got a lot on his plate. First of all, he's got the possibility of a by-election coming up and Labour have already poured massive amount of troops into Rutherglen and Hamilton if um, Margaret Ferrier has to leave her berth in that seat. Secondly, he's got all the troubles you've just flagged up with the auditors. I mean, it seems incredible that we should have a leadership campaign for the national government without the incoming leader of that government not knowing that the party in question was without auditors. That's quite a difficult one to handle. And of course, the other thing is he won with a very small margin of 52 to 48 percent. And the person um, the person he beat, Kate Forbes, uh, um, his, uh, you know, is is being relentlessly positive about him. But she did say this morning in, in a column in the newspaper I work for, she did say this morning uh, that, you know, he doesn't basically have his sorrows to seek. Uh, Alex, by contrast, you've written this week that the smell of political death is already lingering around, Yusuf. Yeah, I mean, and this isn't just the view of unhelpful newspaper columnists. This is the sort of stuff that we're hearing from senior members of the SNP. I mean, Mike Russell, the party president, the acting CEO of the party, says this is the the biggest crisis he can remember in the SNP in his 50 years of membership. The First Minister himself keeps talking about, talking himself into bigger holes, actually, saying, you know, oh, it's, yes, it's been a very difficult day, a problematic couple of weeks and all the rest of it. Uh, and, you know, you have to remember that Yusuf, as Ruth referred to, wasn't elected with the wholehearted enthusiasm of the party membership. He, you know, half the SNP doesn't think he should be leader in the first place. Half the country doesn't like the SNP either. He is very much a minority enthusiasm already. Um, And it is difficult to see how a figure who is elected first minister by the SNP membership, but has an approval rating of about minus 20, can really turn that around. And all the news about the SNP's finances, you know, some of which is taking on a sort of I don't know, sort of Rococo Baroque type of um, uh, level of bizarreness and complication um, doesn't help because it's very difficult for him to then sort of set the agenda, tell his own story, give an impression of what it is he wants to do both with the SNP and with the country as a whole. And meanwhile, it's very easy, I think, for opposition parties to say, look, the SNP can't even be straight with their own politicians, with their own ruling committee. Um, You know, how can you expect them to be straight with the country as well? Um, And if they can't have their own house in order, how can they properly lead Scotland? It's time for change and so on, which is obviously something we're going to hear from Labour for, uh, you know, time and time again over the next 18 months, two, three years. Uh, Ruth, there's an old Irish joke where you ask for directions and you say, well, I I wouldn't start from here. That's basically the position Humza Yusuf finds himself in, but what can he do in the immediate term to improve his position, do you think? Well, I think that's right. You wouldn't start from here, and I'm sure Hamza Yusuf wouldn't have started from here. I think, and I mean, we must remember that Alex is talking from a point of view where he's been relentlessly and always anti-independence, so that doesn't make him the most objective source of comment on this. But where I do agree with him is that there, there, has, there is a mess to clear up, and Hamza is an, in the unfortunate position of being a chief messer clearer-upper. And uh, I'm not quite sure where he goes from here, but I think it's... Um, it's it's quite possible that until and unless he gets new auditors and a new CEO in place very quickly, then he'll continue to be plagued by the kind of problems that Alex is referring to. And, and just quickly, yes or no on the question of an SNP rebrand along the lines Brian Cox suggested yesterday? Well, actually... Curiously, and I don't know if Alex will remember this or whether he's got selective amnesia as well, but um, Nicola Sturgeon herself did suggest at one point that she thought the use of the term national was unfortunate. And I think she meant because um, 
the kind of nationalism that the uh, Scottish National Party aspires to is called civic nationalism. And of course, there's some very right wing populist nationalist nationalist movements across the globe. And she didn't want them confused with that. Uh, that's that's really interesting. Uh, your response to that, Alex? Yeah, Nicola Sturgeon once said that. I think it was at uh, an appearance at the Edinburgh Book Festival a, a few years ago that, if, you know, if she was founding a party, she wouldn't call it the National Party. But nevertheless, that's what it is. <laughs> um, you know, I, it's kind of too late for a rebrand after 80 years. Um, but the very fact that, you know, you have celebrity supporters such as Brian Cox and, and other people even talking in these terms is a further indication, a reinforcement of the idea that something has gone badly wrong at the top of the SNP. You know, and whether you like it or not, you know, the sight of, uh, you know, police incident tent outside Nicola Sturgeon's, you know, in Nicola Sturgeon's garden is the sort of thing that leaves an impression on voters and leaves me to think that this isn't one of those stories that is just going to be here for a week and then will disappear. I think that this is doing real damage to the SNP and there are plenty of people within the SNP who certainly feel that. Uh, To what extent, Ruth, does the struggles for the SNP equal um, struggles for the, the constitutional proposition of independence more broadly. Is the future of the independence movement that it's more likely to be split across a number of parties in the SNP's days? Is the, the big catch-all, big tent party are probably over or, or is that premature? I think that is premature. However, it's interesting that the, there was a, a group um, that has now morphed into the movement for Scottish independence and that is hoping to embrace all of the yes hubs and all of the wider yes family. And I think one of the problems that um, plagued the SNP was that it became quite tightly controlled. Um, and so the the wider yes family, the the um, depends which poll you're looking at, but the 48 to 50 something percent of, of Scotland who are in favour of independence didn't find themselves necessarily fully represented uh, within the SNP. And I think that's something they have to address. I think, to be fair, it's something they are addressing. Uh, tightly controlled, I think, is the key phrase from Ruth there, Alex. Are there any signs that Humza is broadening uh, his circle of trust and will govern uh, the SNP in Scotland more consensually with a bigger uh, with a bigger circle of advisers than the sort of kitchen cabinet Nicola Sturgeon came to rely on? Well, he's got to. Uh, I mean, even if he didn't want to, he would now be in a, a situation where he would have little alternative because his his control of the party, his authority over the party isn't anything like hers. Um, and of course, you know, he's in the curious position where he is simultaneously the continuity candidate, the preferred candidate of Nicola Sturgeon and those close to her. And yet at the same time, he has to now find himself embracing change um, because, uh, you know, and he, again, he doesn't really have any alternative to that because the logic of his, his uh, leadership campaign was like Nicola Sturgeon, but not as good. Um, and so that therefore means you have to find alternative ways of, of advancing the SNP's agenda. His difficulty, obviously, is that it, it is not going to be easy for him to take the party, let alone the rest of the country with him on this and you know and that's why although support for independence remains pretty constant there hasn't been any fall off in that there has been a decoupling of independence or support from independence and support for the SNP and since you can't get independence without an extremely strong SNP that is a problem for the independence movement more generally um, and at the moment there isn't any sign that Hamza Yusuf has an ability to address that let alone solve it. That was Times columnist Alex Massey and Scottish journalist and broadcaster Ruth Wishart asking that searching question that's overshadowing Holyrood and Westminster at the minute. What is the future of the SNP?
Now it's time for the latest in our series of counterfactuals. What if JFK had lived in 1963? To chew this one over, I am joined by the American historian and author Ellen Fitzpatrick. Uh, afternoon, Ellen. Good afternoon. How are you? Very well. All the better for being uh, joined <laughs> by you. Uh, Let's get straight into it, shall we? JFK is considered one of the most popular U.S. presidents. Would that still be the case today? Had he lived? Um, that's a very uh, good question. I think uh, yes. You know, he at the time of his death, he was uh, his popularity had declined a little bit in part because he had finally moved forward on the civil rights issue and was introducing a sweeping civil rights bill. To Congress. So he had acted on one of the most compelling issues of the early 1960s in the United States. So his popularity declined a little bit around then. But overall, he was uh, he averaged around 70 percent approval uh, over the course of his presidency, the highest of any president in the history of polling. Uh, it's, it's, it, you know, it's interesting we're talking about JFK as his uh, his great nephew, uh, Joe Kennedy the third speaks at uh, speaks in Belfast. Uh, if, if we hear from Joe Biden in the next uh, few minutes, we'll of course go live to him. But in the meantime, JFK assassinated in 1963. Of course, there was a presidential election the following year uh, that was won, of course, by uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, his vice president. Uh, could he have won that election, JFK? Was he on course for re-election? Yes, I think it very likely that he would have won, and of course, his death ensured that Lyndon Johnson would win in a landslide. It's interesting that um, his likely opponent and Johnson's true opponent was Barry Goldwater, who at that time represented a uh, fairly um, fairly extreme uh, version of American conservatism, which uh, looks a bit like liberalism today. Uh, he, was, um, he was a senator from Arizona, uh, quite bellicose in his Cold War rhetoric, mm. uh, even more so than uh, Kennedy himself, who was a Cold Warrior in many ways. But I think he would very likely have been uh, reelected in 1964 had he lived. Um, what, what, what did his death mean for the, for the Vietnam War? Do you think it would have ended sooner had JFK, had JFK lived? Well, there's a huge debate among historians on that very question, Patrick, and I guess um, I come down on the side of thinking that, no, he would not have been likely to have escalated the war to the degree, American engagement in the war, to the degree that Lyndon Johnson did. It is true that Kennedy was uh, the president who uh, sent some 16,000 so-called advisors into South Vietnam to help with military training and so forth, uh, but he did not. He drew the line at committing combat troops. Would he, as a veteran of the Second World War, uh, and given all of his feelings about his experience in the military and thereafter, have um, overseen the kinds of casualties that Johnson uh, was left to uh, oversee in the ensuing years of escalation? I just don't think he would have uh, ultimately uh, stayed as long or allowed as large an escalation. But 
you know, historians disagree, and of course, we'll never know. And and fans of uh, Robert Caro's magisterial biographies of, of LBJ will be familiar uh, with the role he played in enforcing the Civil Rights Act through, uh, which was yes. obviously, you know, torturous negotiations with uh, with both houses of Congress and, and within them. Um, do you think JFK could have could have could have pulled off the feat that? Um, uh, that LBJ did because you know there's been some suggestions that the shooting of JFK was what spurred him on to to make sure it was enacted. Do you think uh, without that change of president, it would have happened? Happened? Well, you know, you po- that's a good point you're raising because paradoxically, what Johnson did was to use the death of Kennedy, this violent murder of the president, as a a way of prodding the public to. You know, he said the best way we can honor President Kennedy is to see passage the civil rights bill that meant so much to him. I think that JFK would have had a much harder go of it uh, in 1964 than LBJ. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. They did in part because Johnson used the assassination of Kennedy as a uh, spur to the country in moving ahead on this initiative. So uh, it's an interesting uh, paradox there. Eventually, that bill, I think, you know, its time had come, it would have come, um, but um, probably not as quickly under uh, a President Kennedy as it did under a President Johnson. And what impact do you think it has on the on the way the Cold War then unfolded? Um, it's interesting that spring of uh, 1963, the summer and the fall, Kennedy really was coming into his own and his presidency. And he gave a very compelling speech at American University in which he talked about the need of uh, peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union, uh, regardless of uh, the the differences between the two countries. Uh, he had successfully steered to passage the nuclear test ban treaty, and he was very much softening his rhetoric towards the Soviet Union in that period. So. I think that there were signs of, you know, increasing uh, relaxation of tensions with the Soviet Union after the really terrifying Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. 
was Alan Fitzpatrick, the US historian and journalist, answering the question, what if JFK had lived? And that's all we've got time for on today's Redbox podcast. Remember to like, subscribe, share and follow wherever you get yours from. <laughs>